Well, I had recently discovered that there are 11 characteristics of the human body that I have, but no one else in the world has. For instance, my iris is different than your iris. My, my uh, retina is different than yours. My DNA is certainly different than your DNA. The rim of my ear is distinguishable amongst all other ears. My lip print, my tongue topography, my voice, my toe print, my teeth, the gait of my walk. No one else has the gait of my walk. And of course, my fingerprints. That makes me me. There are 7 billion people in the world, and yet I am the only one that possess certain characteristics of those traits. There is, as I told my wife this week, no one quite like me in this world. And she said, oh gosh. <laughs> Beyond the physical characteristics, there is so much more that make you unique. And today I just want to finish this series off by looking at some fingerprints that every believer can say that they have. These very fingerprints are the things that mark you and identify you as being one that has been marked by Christ. I think Evan did a wonderful job last week, don't you, as he told us about the validity that we find in this world and really that the true validation that we have of our life is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. He concluded that message by reading this passage of Scripture on the screen, 1 Peter chapter 2. Here's what it says. But you are a chosen people. It's not on the screen, actually. Let me just read it to you. You are a chosen people. A royal. We'll get it right. We've got two more services. <laughs> but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, God's special possession, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now within that scripture are the four fingerprints that I really want to point out to you that make you distinguishable and very things that make you special because you're in Christ. Jesus tells us that we are special when we accept him as a Lord and Savior. Here's the first fingerprint of our faith, and that is I am unconditionally accepted. If you've ever been rejected, you know how amazing it feels to be accepted. Some of our deepest wounds come through rejection, especially when we are rejected or denied by people that we really respect or think highly of. I think irreversible hurt comes into our life when we are told no by somebody. Maybe jilted by a spouse, dropped by a company, shunned by a child or shunned by a parent, abandoned by a friend, or denied by a clique in the church. I think that hurts our, our psyche. And when we were kids and when we liked a, a boy or a girl in our class, there was a term that they used to express that, that secret like that you had for the significant other. That term was, you have a crush on that person. You know why they call it a crush? They call it a crush because that's how you feel when the other person doesn't feel the same way towards you. You're crushed. Because most of us are very concerned about what other people think. You don't think so? Just think about the ways we try to fit in and become accepted. We wear certain clothes just to fit in. If you were ever a, you know, a survivor of the 70s, did you really think that was flattering? Look at those guys. They're like, the, the girls are looking at, hey, you're boss. And they're going, yeah, we know, baby. 
I'm not sure what's going on. Or the 80s, the 80s, I'm not sure here what is going on with those guys. Uh, Those girls, though, I mean, that was right in my, I was, I mean, that was, that's my ideal woman right there. I grew up, I'm a product of the 80s. Or how about, how about just the the 90s? I couldn't think of any better way to decipher the fashion of the 90s but through 90210 and Saved by the Bell. That is something, I I don't want to be too harsh there because I think I still have some pants and some shirts in my closet that appear the same way. I didn't want to really dig into how we fit in right now. Because we're all in clothing that does our best to try to fit in to the times that we live in. Because we don't want anybody to say, man, come on, those bell bottoms are from the 70s. Get with it. We all follow some kind of fashion trend just to fit in. We don't only do that with fashion, but we do that with people that we're around. You know, I've met some friends that... When they're with a different group of men, their personality radically changes. They start cursing and they start telling filthy jokes and their maturity gets less. They've turned into someone completely different just to fit into a group. I think we know how to fit in because we know what it's like to be left out. And the Bible tells us you're a chosen people. We've been chosen by God. That word chosen has uh, the idea that we're hand-selected by God. He hand-chose you. Within it is the concept that we are, we are wanted by God. When I was a kid, we played a lot of street football, and all the neighborhood kids would get together. There'd be my brother and I. There'd be uh, Chris and Steve, Terry and Jerry, twins, obviously, Dean and Brian, Andy Brazil, and we would line up on the curb, and the coaches or the captains would always be the same guys, and the rest of us lackeys would just line up and wait to be drafted into a team. Now, there were a couple of things. You didn't want to be the last person to be drafted on the team. And certainly, you didn't want to be the last person drafted on the team when teams were uneven because the conversation would go something like this amongst the captains. They'd say, well, I don't want him. Do you want him? I don't want him. Do you want him? And then finally, someone would say, okay, fine. I'll take him. He's my brother. I have to, you know? Can I let you into a little secret? That was the conversation that was always had over me. I was the youngest and I was the smallest of the group and that had stuck into my psyche. And looking back over the course of my years and at least in my athletic times, I was gonna be determined from then on out never to lose a spot if I joined a team because I'd be rejected by my ability. Wasn't gonna let that to stop me. And I didn't want to be ever told again, you're not wanted. And when I finally made it to the place where I was like constantly being picked, not as the last one, but maybe the second to the last, It was a good feeling to not be the last one, to actually be wanted. And the Bible says we've been chosen, we've been hand-selected, we've been wanted. And if you've ever been rejected, you know the amazing feeling that comes along with being unconditionally selected and accepted. Let's look into this in the Gospel of John chapter 4. There's a woman who meets Jesus for the very first time. She's a bit embarrassed by the encounter. She has no idea that he is even going to be there when She goes to the well, the village well, to go get water for the day. She's there during the lull because she doesn't want anybody to see her. You see, the women of the village have already met for the morning. They have met to socialize, to gossip, and to get the fresh water for the day. And she's come after they've already left because she's an outcast. You see, there's a rumor in town. There's, there's gossip in the town about this woman that we're about ready 
to encounter. She is either a prostitute, the village thinks, or she's just someone that doesn't know how to keep a man and she's kind of a, a runaround, flirtatious woman. But either way, they've marked her with an A on her chest and they've recognized her as socially unacceptable. Now, she didn't have to be told that. She could feel the mood of the village towards her. And I guess in some ways, she did this to herself because she is addicted to men. You see, the word on the street was prostitute or hussy or runaround. And she's embarrassed when she meets Jesus because Jesus knew this about her. Everybody knew this about her. Here we are in verse 9, and when Jesus first encounters her, this woman feels so insecure around Jesus that she just points out the obvious, and she says in verse 9, you are a Jew, I am a Samaritan woman. And this is her first attempt, her first maneuver to distance herself from him. And that is that Jews were notoriously nasty to Samaritans. And she's saying, why would you have anything to do with me? Aren't you just going to be mean to me? So get your meanness done with and move on. Secondarily, she says, you're not supposed to talk to me because culturally, you're a man, I'm a woman. And you're way above me. And society puts me way beneath you. So would you just say what you need to say and get what you need to get so that I can leave this place? But Jesus began to hint to her something special. He began to hint to her something that he's never hinted to somebody ever before. That he is the son of God. Here's the conversation. Pick it up with me if you can. Just kind of, just kind of follow through the text the best that you can. Jesus, may I have a drink? The woman. You were a Jew and a man. Jesus, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask me for a drink. The woman. How foolish you don't even have a bucket to draw water out of the well with. Jesus, I'm not, I'm not even talking about water in the well. I'm talking about eternal life with God. The woman, okay, then give me some of that eternal life. Jesus, first go out and get your husband so he can experience eternal life too. The woman, oy vey, I don't have a husband. Jesus, you're right. You have five husbands. And the woman you're with, or the man you're with now, is not even your husband. The woman, I can tell that you're a prophet. You're someone who's powerful and from God. And for the first time, Jesus announces to a woman that's considered a prostitute, who's considered unworthy of society's acceptance, I am God's son. You know, he never spoke that to his own disciples. He never said that to his own disciples. He never audibly came out with those words until the trial of his crucifixion. He didn't preach about that. He didn't tell his closest friends. Who did he tell that secret, the mystery of the universe to? A woman that was unaccepted, who was gossiped about to be a prostitute. Now, why would Jesus, why would Jesus tell the most important secret of who he is to that woman? I'll tell you why. Because secrets are privileged information, and you only tell secrets to those who you trust and have confidence in. And Jesus accepted this woman unconditionally and trusted her with his deepest secret. I am the Son of God. She was accepted by Jesus. 
because God had chosen her. Friends, you're accepted by Jesus because God has chosen you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 tells us, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Now think about that for a second. Before God mapped out the oceans, before God thought about how to pile up the mountains, before God thought of how to make a great light, the sun, and a lesser light, the moon, God had you in mind. He thought about you. You were in his mind from the very beginning, long before oceans, long before mountains, long before galaxies were spun into existence. And that day that God accepted that woman at the well unconditionally, it tells us that God will accept us unconditionally as well too. He made you acceptable by reaching out to you. God sent his only son so that you would know God is not angry with you. He's not mad at you. He's not looking at you and say, man, you've done something so wrong. I, I'm going to push you away. As a matter of fact, Jesus clarifies where he stands with you. John chapter 6 says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, let's say this last phrase together. I will never drive away. Jesus says, if you're going to come and accept me and follow after me, I'm not going to be the one that pushes you away. I'm going to receive you and accept you. The first distinguishing fingerprint of a Christian is, I am unconditionally accepted by God. Here's the second unique fingerprint as a believer, is that I am a prized possession. I think many of us want to be accepted, but it's one thing to be accepted, but it's another thing to be acknowledged that we are considered worthy or to have worth. You may have discovered that great companies not only accept their employees, but they tell them how valuable they are to the company. Great companies have a way of speaking into their workers' lives that they are worthy and valuable to the company's bottom line. So if you are someone that has looked for a pay raise, and you've gone to another company for that pay raise, but you felt like you weren't valuable, you've probably thought, you know what? I was more successful other, at the other job than I am here with more money. Because most people will take the place that recognizes them over the place, over the place that will give them more money. They'll take the place of recognition first because the th- feeling is having a million bucks is, much different, is a much different feeling than feeling like a million bucks. And people would rather feel like a million bucks. And so great companies take the time to invest in people personally. Great companies take the time to tell their employees, you're valuable and we want to challenge you and give you all the opportunities that this company can afford to you. And you know what happens? When, a, when an employee feels valued, they work above and beyond the expectations of the company. They work harder for the company. You know, a unique fingerprint about you is, as a Christian, that you are God's prized possession, He doesn't make you feel valuable so you'll be more productive. He makes you feel valuable because you are his kid and he is your father. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, what we read at the very beginning, our text for the day, you are God's special possession. And although that might sound funny, God regards you as a possession. We must remember that God is not just our father. God is our creator. And as creator, he sees himself as the very one that's developed us, molded us, and even owns us. And this is a helpful reminder as we talk about, talk about our worth to God. 
Because God considers you priceless. Now, what would, what would determine the value of something? What gives something value in this world? There's two things. Number one, the person that possesses the item has to think that it's valuable. And God thinks you're valuable. Number two, somebody else outside of that person that possesses it has an interest in buying it off of that person. And Jesus bought you at a great price. Let's apply this for a moment. God believes you're valuable. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12 and look at verse 22 with me. Because Jesus has this incredible teaching on the things that we worry over. And we get so fixated on the worry aspect of his teaching that we forget really what the principle of the teaching is about. That the teaching isn't about worry. The teaching is really about do you trust God to sustain you? Do you believe that God will show you grace and mercy to sustain your daily needs? And it really comes down to what will overcome worry? Understanding that you have worth to God. This is the teaching of Jesus. Verse 23. Start there with me. Rather, verse 22. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll or, what you're, or, or, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. Verse 24. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than the birds. Okay, did you hear that? Jesus says, you worry, and you worry, and you worry, and you worry. Why? Why do you worry? Don't you realize that you're of great worth to God? That you are extremely valuable? That God considers you the pinnacle of his creation? Stop worrying. You're worthy of God's grace and mercy. He thinks you're valuable. And what do you do with valuables? You guard them. You keep them safe. You make sure they're secure. See, not only does God believe you're valuable... But someone was willing to pay for you so that you can understand the fathom of your value. Jesus paid for you. 1 Corinthians 7.23 says, You all were bought at a great price, so do not become slaves of people. Jesus bought you at that great price. You know, if you want to know what a stock in the stock market is worth, you go and look up the symbol of that stock to determine its value. Every day the market fluctuates, so that stock's going to move up and down. It's going to rise and fall. What might be a good buy today might be a bust tomorrow. You know, the, the worst performing stock of 2016 was Indo International. It's a pharmaceutical company. And if you invested in that, I'm sorry. It's listed on the NASDAQ. The symbol is ENDP. And if you were to look at that symbol today, you'd find out that that valued company, which was something in 2015, is now absolutely worthless. And if you want to know the worth that you are as a Christian, you don't need to look any further but to the symbol of the cross. And it doesn't fluctuate in value. It's locked in. When Jesus' arms were stretched out on that wooden beam, his arms extended out as if to say, I love you this much. As great as love as I could possibly give you, I died because I can't live without you. You see, people might have told you you're worthless. They might have told you you don't matter. They might have told you that you're not important. They were lying. Because to God, you are completely 
valuable, and priceless. And the greatest ransom that was ever paid in human history was paid when God ransomed you, when God gave you his son. And he died in your place and took on your sin so you didn't have to die in your place and stay with your own sin. Here's the third unique mark of a Christian, the third fingerprint, the things that only a Christian can can claim is that as I am forever loved. I mean, there is an eternal love here. Our scripture of 1 Peter told us, once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. God's gonna forever love you. You know, everything in this world has a shelf life. The Bible says there's only two things in this world that are gonna be forever things. Number one is his word. And Isaiah, it says the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of God endures Forever. God's word is eternal. It's always going to be around. Get used to the scriptures. They're going to be here forever. But there's a second thing, and that's, that's you. You're going to last forever. Ecclesiastes puts it like this. It says, the dust returns to the ground it came from. He's referring to our bodies, by the way. The dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. <laughs> it's on loan. God says, I want that spirit, I want that spirit back. And so it goes back to God. And so the body stays and the soul and spirit, they move back to God. And so you're, you're an eternal being that's there to last forever. And may I remind you that there are two forever destinations. There's two forever places. Only two forever places. There's one that's called heaven by the Bible. It's described as a place where God lives and reigns and where those who have followed Christ on earth will live with him without sin. There's also another forever dwelling the Bible calls hell. That's a place absent of God's love, absent really of any type of love. God's not there, yet he has charge over it, but he's removed his presence from that place and it's a place absent of God. And you know God loves your soul so much. He loves you so much that he doesn't want to see you go to that dangerous place called hell. He wants you to accept his son Jesus and be forever loved. And when you accept Jesus, you will be forever loved. And he'll, he'll never grow tired of you. He'll never be ashamed of you one day. Your personality will never get under his skin. He loves your personality. You want to know why? He created it. That's why he loves it. And when you accept Christ Jesus as your Savior, he says this. I love you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with an unfailing kindness. That love's everlasting. And God says, that's how I love you. It never fails. It's never going to quit. Let me give you two qualities of this, this unending love. The first is God's love is unconditional. Nothing can stop God from loving you. I mean, you can't, you can't do something so terrible that God just says, I'm done with you. He loves you when you can't even find it in your heart to love yourself. There's a story that stretches through the Old Testament book of Hosea. Uh, it's a story about a man that loves his wife. He is a preacher, Hosea is. His wife is a beautiful woman with a very unattractive name. Her name is Gomer. And Gomer has decided that I'm not going to love Hosea anymore. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be like the woman at the well. And I'm just going to attach myself to man after man after man. And she does this. And when Hosea finally gives her an opening back into the house and says, honey, I still love you. I'll always love you. I've been faithful to you. I'll always be faithful to you. She says, I want nothing to do with it. And somebody buys her up and she becomes a prostitute on the street and she's severely abused and mistreated as a prostitute. 
I don't know if she had thought because Hosea was showing her unconditional love that that meant that she had his unconditional approval. Some of you think that about God. Because he's shown you unconditional love, you now have unconditional approval to misbehave, to sin. But that's not how God's love works. Hosea was in complete anguish over what his wife was doing. Hosea was wringing his hands. He didn't know what to do. He remained faithful to her. He remained righteous to God. Many years passed. Hosea hasn't been in contact with Gomer for years and hasn't even seen her for years. And, And he's walking through the marketplace of the city. And there she is. There she is, she's standing on an auction block, and there she stands. She's abused, she's haggard, she's emotionally scarred. Uh, For sure, this is not the same woman that he'd come to know and love back in his youth. And and people are bidding on her. But no one's paying very much for her. She's considered damaged goods by the auctioneer. So Hosea decides to put up a bid. His bid, six ounces of silver, nine bushels of barley. I did the math at today's rates. He paid $124.37 for his wife. But in his eyes, she's priceless. She was worth nothing anymore to society. Completely used up and damaged goods. And Hosea says, no, you're my wife. And she comes home as his wife. And here's how he loves her from that moment on. He loves her as if nothing had ever happened. That is an incredible kind of love. And then the book of Hosea says at the very end, this is how God loves his people. He uses Hosea's life to say, this is how God loves you. You're damaged goods. And you get to a point where you're finally feeling worthless. And God says, no, you're priceless. And I'm going to buy you back. I'm going to redeem you. And it doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter how you feel emotionally. It doesn't matter the kinds of things that you think God would never love you for. God says, I love you unconditionally because it's a forever love. Here's the second aspect to that forever love. It's that it is unending. It can never end. Once you come to Christ, you accept him. God's love doesn't run out on you. He doesn't walk away from you. You might walk away from him. But let me give you some encouraging news. The prodigal son walked away from the father. A father that loved him. And when the prodigal son finally came back to his senses and said, you know what? It was better to be in my father's house than to be on my own. Who was waiting for him? Dad was. Eagerly expecting his son to come home so that his son would recognize that he is loved with a never-ending love. God's love never gives up on you. He's not fickle. He's not moody. He doesn't shut down when you let him down. The book of Hebrews puts it like this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, And forevermore. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Look, God never changes. That means his love for you never changes. That means you can count on his character. Here's how the psalmist puts it. He says it like this. For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever. And his faithfulness continues to each generation. He has an unfailing love. He has a forever love. He has a faithful love. And it continues to you. And it continues to go forever and ever and ever. You can't. You can't run out of God's love. Here's the fourth distinguished remark of a believer that we can celebrate in is that I'm completely forgiven. Okay, our scripture today said, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here's the thing. God can only do one thing when it comes to forgiveness. And that is he can only completely forgive. He doesn't partially forgive. 
He's not like your ex-wife. He's not like your children. He's not like your boss. He can only completely forgive. You want to know why he can only completely forgive? Because he knows exactly every little square inch of your heart. He knows exactly what your mind's thinking. He knows exactly what you've done. He knows every little thing about you. You see, there's nothing in your life that surprises him. Nothing. Your worst sin doesn't even frighten him. He's actually defeated it already. He's beat it up. And when you accept Jesus, you don't need to fear to be accepted. You don't need to fear if you're, you're loved. You don't need to fear if you're worthy. You don't need to fear if you're forgiven. Christ eases those fears and says, you are all those things because you've accepted me. Here's what God's word tells us. It says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now leave that up there for a second. There's no punishment for what you've done in your past. You might have thought differently about this. When you accept Jesus as your savior, your past is forgiven. He's not gonna hold you against your past. Others might. You might find yourself in this room as someone that's now finally living out your faith, being bold in your faith, or you've just found faith in Christ, but you're still being stamped in your workplace or at your family as being the old you. Would you finally tell those people, don't judge me by my past because I don't live there anymore. I now live in Christ. Some of you have come from backgrounds of faith where this has been so pressed into your mind that because you have committed a sin, a transgression against God, you must pay a penance. And so you have to pray a prayer or you have to do something to get that sin off of your back, some kind of punishment or consequence. You know that's a man-made rule. God never came up with that. Let me give you a couple of ways you know you're forgiven. First, you know God forgives you because it's his nature to forgive. This is what God does. God says about himself in Isaiah, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. Now, the word transgressions is another way to say the sins of your past. For my own sake, and I remember your sins, what's the two words? No more. So one thing you need to know about God is it's a part of his character to forgive you of your sins, but he's also forgetful of your sins. Don't you love God's bad memory? I do. You see, God doesn't hold your past sins against you like many in your life do. Psalm 103 gives us a mental picture of what God does with our sins when we seek out his forgiveness. Here's what it says. As far, well, why don't we just read it together? It helps to, encap, it helps to just bring it afresh to us. Let's read it together. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What a beautiful passage of scripture. It's a good thing God didn't say as far as north is from south because north and south have a beginning point and an ending point. He says, as far as east is from west, it's infinite. God has pushed your sin so far away, it will never be brought back up. He will not throw it back in your face. It's God's nature to forgive those who seek it. Here's the second, second thing. The way you know you're forgiven is because Jesus proved it on that cross. It's not just a symbol of the value that you're worth. It's a, the cross is a place where actions have spoken louder than words, isn't it? It's a place where the rubber has met the road. It's a place where we've heard about God's love for you. We've heard about God's expression of forgiveness for you. But the cross is the demonstration that he was very real in what he had to say. And Jesus' willful death <clears throat> proves that God's, God's desire to forgive you, he'll go to extreme lengths to do so. 
Ephesians 1 verse 7 puts it like this. In Christ, we are set free by the blood of his death. And so we have forgiveness of sins. How rich is God's grace? Set free and forgiven by Christ's blood. Friend, that's a, that's a, that's a forgiveness that sits ready for you to accept today in the name of Jesus Christ. Because you are not what your parents said you were. You are not what your enemies or friends said you were. You are not what society says you are. You are not what Satan says you are. You're not even what you think you say you are. When you come to Christ, you are who God says you are. And you know what that is? That is, you are unconditionally accepted. You are a prized possession. You are forever loved. And you are completely forgiven.